everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And Cole can't be with us tonight. He had family things he had to do uh, with his wife and new baby, but that's okay. Because uh, when we replaced Cole with two uh, fourth-year PharmD students, what's going on, Blake Shannon? Hey. hey. How's it going? Good, good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad Thanks. to be here. Of course, we got our man AJ in the back uh, doing his producer thing. Good evening. What he's actually <laughs> doing is he's, he's on his phone right now on Instagram, but that's okay. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's all good. We still love you, AJ. It's Twitter. Twi- excuse me, Twitter. AJ's old school. So uh, we're going to do a patient case that uh, we worked on this month, and um, this is a patient that we saw at one of our rural sites, and uh, before we get into that, though, I want to kind of hear about you guys a little bit. I know about you guys, because I've been hanging out with you all month, but for the listeners, Blake, you want to uh, start first? You want to get let ladies start first? Uh, we'll let the ladies go first. <laughs> okay, my name is Shannon, um, so of course I'm a P4 this year. Um Really enjoyed this month, ambulatory care. I really like it. We'll so. ask for that again in a couple of days, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm really big into community. So we'll see where it takes me. Are you uh, planning on doing amp care type stuff when you get out, or have you kind of thought that far? Um, you keeping your I options think open? maybe down the road. Um, definitely keeping my options open for sure. Cool. Wait, and uh, what what super easy rotation do you have next month? I am in the pediatric cardiac ICU, so that's going to be lots of fun. So that's cake, yep. right? I mean, you yep. can do that with your eyes closed. <laughs> yep. Very different than what I've seen so far, so yes. it'll be interesting. Yes, that'll be, peds in general, I think, is pretty tough. I can't imagine peds cardiac ICU. Exactly, Jeez. yes. But no, that's cool. I appreciate you coming on today. Mm-hmm. Um, Blake, what about you, sir? Yeah, so my name is Blake. Uh, I'm a P4 as well, one of Shannon's classmates. Um Right now, after I finish pharmacy school, I think I'm going to go into compound and pharmacy. Nice. So that's like where a lot of my rotations are kind of centered around. Um, but then, you know, like the ambulatory care, like yeah. what you're doing was a definitely an eye opener, you know, just kind of, if I weren't to do compound, I think I would want to do something like that. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you may end up finding a gig where you can do both. <laughs> right. Or yeah. two, two part-time gigs or something like that. Uh-huh. Put them together. That'd be cool. Um, both of you guys have compounding experience, right? Yes. Yeah. You worked uh, through uh, did rotations or worked through, um, was it Pitt Street? Uh-huh. Yeah. Shout out Pitt Street Compounding. Yes. <laughs> I hear uh, they're a fun rotation and lots of learning opportunities for students. That's cool. I don't know them personally, but good job for, for you guys. Great place. Uh, great pharmacy. That's cool. Um, yeah, compounding definitely seems fun, but I feel like, I don't know how long it would take before you start feeling like you're doing a lot of the same things. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, if you love that kind of, cause I know like uh, Shirley did that for years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think he was gonna, and then he was thinking about opening up his own thing, but then took the teaching job. Or mm, something oh yeah. Like yeah. Now there's his history. <laughs> right. <laughs> now that's cool. Um, so this is a patient, like I said, that we, we kind of saw in clinic. And so we're going to kind of walk through, um, you know, the major disease states of this patient had, obviously we weren't able to address all of these in one meeting, but, um, this is the first time we saw the patient. So, you know, we kind of did a couple things, a couple changes and, uh, you know, we left it at that and he'll follow up in a month and then we'll change more if we can. Um, and, uh, just to kind of give you a, cl- a quick overview of the patient, the patient does have diabetes. Um, the patient has 
what was listed as just straight primary hypertension, um, but after further evaluation of other you know charts and things like or documents rather uh, other encounters from the past, patient did see cardiology at one point and um, had an echo done and had an ejection fraction of forty two percent. So the whole uh, reduced or excuse me the preserved ejection fraction almost reduced and it was I think the echo was from six or eight months ago so maybe even yeah. be a little out maybe they have mm-hmm. um, further decline that ejection fraction but we'll treat him as hefpef today but that um, you know the that kind of changes things up a little bit so um, when we started off looking at their their meds and all that stuff we were kind of thinking hypertension and then, yeah we had to change it up um, also has stage two CKD um, and then BPH as well um, so the uh, diabetes, I guess we can kind of start with, um, you know, the patient as of right now, and, and let me mention the, uh, the meds as well. So the patient is currently on Lantus and was on the starting dose of the Ozempic. Um, and then is also taking amlodipine, taking less uh, amlodipine 10, lisinopril, uh, HCTZ combo. You guys know how much I love HCTZ. Um, lisinopril, HCTZ 20 slash 12.5. So basically 20 milligrams of lisinopril since 12.5 HCTZ is a placebo dose. And then uh, furosemide 20 as needed. Um, and then I was taking tamsulosin uh, and finasteride for the BPH. Um, and I believe that was everything. Does that sound right to you guys? Uh, he was on metoprolol tartrate 50 milligrams once a day. That's too. right. Thank you, Shannon. Um, yeah, that was an interesting dosing strategy for metoprolol tartrate. But yes, 50 milligrams once a day, um, you know, because it's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys want to start with the diabetes, I guess? We'll kind of run through that. Sounds good. Um, so... As far as, you know, the diabetes goes, the Lantus, uh, the patient is on, they're, so they're on 62 units um, in the morning and 54 units in the evening, um, although uh, adherence kind of is a little bit of a question because the A1C is still 13. Um, and in fact, the patient did admit that they had been out of their medications uh, for a little while um, when they first got to the clinic and met with us. So, um, but even prior to that, it, it looks a little shoddy as far as the um pick up dates at the pharmacy and all that because we, we checked and see um, the, the not adherence does seem to be a problem so we did kind of reinforce uh, reinforce that and I know we've talked a lot about diabetes in these patient cases so the one thing I do want to mention real quick is the whole metformin thing um, because I know I've said this before as well but I feel like this is a good point to kind of drive home but um, this patient was not on metformin um, didn't have any contraindications for it um I, I, do you do you remember guys if we if they if you ever said like why they stopped him or I can't remember but I know he was on it at yeah one point. he was on it but yeah he said he hadn't been for several months now I, I think if I rem- remember correctly I think he had gone into the hospital at one point where they had stopped it and then I guess just never got restarted again uh-huh. and uh, yeah so um, we looked through the the patient's chart though there was no reason why they couldn't be on it and um, so. This is a, a conversation I have, at least in my experience, quite a bit. But the whole conversation of like getting them back on metformin, whether they're they either were stopped before or maybe they had a, an adverse event with metformin, usually you know, real bad GI distress or diarrhea, um, and it's one of those things that that can be a hard selling point to get patients to get back on their metformin, especially if they had a bad experience with it. Um, so one of the things that I kind of use in my toolbox of trying to get patients to 
adhere to their regiment is um, what the uh, is known as the home trial. And so um, what that study was looking at uh, was patients who were on insulin therapy and they had metformin added to their insulin regimen. Um, initially, they were trying to look at as far as their primary outcome uh, at the combination of either macrovascular or microvascular events as a primary composite. Um, that was not statistically significant compared to placebo. However, when they started looking at secondary outcomes, the macrovascular events were statistically um, reduced, statistically significantly reduced, and uh, less um, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, uh, cardiovascular death, all that good stuff. Um, the other thing was the patients uh, in this trial, because they were looking at macro and microvascular events, they were trying to keep the A1Cs similar because we do know that if the person's A1C is higher and we lower that, then obviously their cardiovascular risk is also probably going to go down as well. Um, so they were trying to keep the patient's A1C basically the same. And uh, so they had to keep decreasing the dose of the patient's you know, insulin regimen in order to accommodate for the metformin being added on. And so patients in the metformin arm had as much as 19 units per day uh, reduced out of their total daily insulin need. And, you know, for somebody like this, who's already on a lot, you know, they're going to be having to deal with a lot of weight gain and, you know, a lot of cost and just multiple injections and things like that. So any kind of buffer that we can kind of add to that and hopefully allow um, the insulin to be, um, you know, more effective and make your body more sensitive to the insulin, um, we want to hopefully do that. And so, you know, I, I kind of quote this trial to patients um, because not only is the Everybody want to avoid things like heart attacks and strokes and all that good stuff, but also telling them we can probably start to decrease the insulin dose over over time as the A1C continues to go down um, usually helps helps buy in um, you know by patients. Also in that study, they had less weight gain in the metformin group, and even though the patients were trying to keep their A1Cs the same, they still had another 0.4 percent A1C reduction. So it's one of those things that uh, metformin just you know, it makes sense. And as clinicians and everything, we all kind of know that. However, if we think about it from the patient's point of view, they're, they don't want to take another medication. And so just telling them, Hey, the guidelines say blah, 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 nobody cares. And so realistically, when you talk to the patient, I actually use the term study or trial, whatever you want to call it, because I've, people do tend to respond well to that. And when you say that, Oh, this study showed blah, 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 you know, the same thing with, with false, uh, false narratives as far as like, have you seen this with COVID or the flu shot or things like that? Um, you know, study shows that the flu shot does horrible thing, whatever people will pay more attention to that because it's got the word study in it. Like, this is my anecdotal right. evidence. I don't have, I don't have solid studies to back this up, but, um, I feel like it's pretty accurate. Right, Blake? Yep. Right. Cool. Uh, <laughs> just checking. Um, but the uh, it's one of those things that when you know I tell them this, and then I don't go into all the details, but I basically just say you know lower the chances of patients having heart attack, stroke, lower the chances of them having weight gain, it decreased the amount of insulin they need, um, kept, drop their A one C more. Um, patients like oh okay, and it gives you that why kind of behind like you know, why we're putting them on this in the first place, and not that I'm just blindly adding something to their regimen. Um, and, uh, that's my little spiel on metformin. I know you guys are sick of hearing, but that's okay. Um, and then with Ozempic, uh, it is important to, to remember that the starting dose pack, um, does need to be, um, increased, uh, at, when the patient's kind of done with the, the initial titration, um, uh, because the continuation, um, dose that one milligram is a separate, you know, uh, 
box package. And so if you put on there the starting kit with the 0.25, 0.5 um, directions and the titration up, then you know, the patient's going to, once they finish that, if they try to get a refill. Some, some insurance companies won't even pay for it um, to be refilled. And then other times, you know, the Ozempic is, I've seen patients basically just stay on the 0.25 dose, which is basically sub-therapeutic. So having them on that is almost like, a, you get them on a good drug, but it's kind of a waste. So it's something that uh, just make sure you're kind of paying attention to. Or if you see, if you're a pharmacist who dispenses, you know, you notice a patient's getting Ozempic, uh, the starting dose, maybe at least bring it up to them so they can ask their provider about it. But the care pharmacists need to make, definitely need to jump on that and change it. Whew. Right? Good. Yes, <laughs> correct. All right. So that's diabetes. We'll leave it at that. Um, patient's A1C is out of control, but we, you know, talked to him, you know, get about getting him back on that performance, mm-hmm. uh, upped his Ozempic, and then we'll follow up with him in a, in a few weeks. Um, but let's talk about this hypertension uh, mystery HEFPEF situation. Um, what did you guys notice about that first off? Anything you want to start off with in particular? Yeah, so he's on quite a bit of meds um, for it. Uh, we're not sure what all was added when, um, but of course the one that sticks out is a lisinopril HCTZ combination. Um, so ideally, you probably want to increase lisinopril to 40 milligrams before we would add something like HCTZ to it. Um, so, yeah. Um, anything in particular, Blake, that you wanted to... Make a point of? Um, was on metoprolol tartrate. Um, yeah, and metoprolol sustenate would be a lot better. Yeah, evidence based. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that's the big, so with, especially with HEFREF, you know, all of our outcome data just kind of falls in the HEFREF right. space, which we don't know that this guy's not there. Right. Um, but uh, it's one of those things that, we have data that clearly points towards certain agents reducing mortality risk. Mm-hmm. So obviously the American Heart Association, American Car- College of Cardiology, they want us using those particular agents at, and at those target doses. Um, there was this uh, um, review that kind of looked at um, not only primary care, but also cardiologists and kind of looked statistically speaking, how many patients were actually on target doses of their you know standard meds for treating their heart failure, and it was like 1% or actually at target doses. So, you know, we, we had a tendency of like when the blood pressure is controlled, okay, just leave it alone, keep the keep the meds as is. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we have studies showing that even if the blood pressure is okay, if we continue to push towards a specific target dose, that we get better and better outcomes. Right. Um, and in fact, one of those studies is uh, the ATLAS trial, specifically with lisinopril. Um, so Atlas was looking at, um, you know, the lower dose of, um, lisinopril with a higher dose of lisinopril. Um, these patients didn't necessarily need, you know, extensive blood pressure lowering, um, but they had better outcomes as far as their heart failure goes, um, with the higher dose. I think in that study, they used 35 milligrams of the, uh, of the lisinopril. I think it was, um, you know, it's an older study, but the, the point being that we want to escalate the dose to, um, you know, the target dose that they have, as long as the patient can tolerate it. We don't want to obviously force them to do it. If they can't tolerate the side effects. That's different. Um, but we do want to push either to target dose or maximally tolerated dose, um, with all of our baseline standard agents. So lisinopril, I definitely like that. I mean, the other thing with HTTZ besides me hating it is like, there's no outcome data at all, really, with HCTZ in hypertension, let alone heart failure. Um, we really won't see any there. 
So if we needed to add something like that, we have our other options that can kind of help with the heart failure and with, um, you know, blood pressure as well. And, uh, you know, kind of kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. But that's something that we probably need to optimize first. And before we start worrying about things like the thiazide diuretics and all that, um, mm -hmm. if it's primary prevent or primary hypertension, that's different. Obviously that's a different story, but HFREF kind of takes precedence over or HFPEF in this case over the, uh, hypertension. So definitely like that idea, just DCing the um, lisinopril uh, HTTC combo and just upping the lisinopril to 40 milligrams. If we want more bang for our buck with uh, the lisinopril, we could always do twice twice a day dosing, so 20 BID, um, to make sure that we kind of dose it on the half-life, make sure we get the most uh, uh, BP lowering you know, numerically. But uh, you get an extra almost 10 uh, millimeters of mercury systolic when you split the dose compared to 40 milligrams once a day. So that's a good little trick. But um, beta blocker wise, um, you know, if, if especially in HEF-REF, we have our three beta blockers, um, carvedilol, metoprolol, succinate, like Blake said, and um, we also have our bisoprolol. Um, you know, if the patient really needs uh, their blood pressure to continue to, to decrease, which um, his, I think, let me double check myself, um, wasn't too bad, um, if I recall correctly. But um, while I'm looking for this, the, the carvedilol being an alpha beta blocker obviously is going to provide better blood pressure lowering. Um, yeah, he's 147 over 87. So has some room to go for sure. Um, and so carvedilol probably would be totally fine for this patient. Um, but let's say his blood pressure was 120 over 80. Um, then we would probably use just the standard evidence-based beta blockers like bisoprolol or metoprolol. Um because those are beta blockers uh, alone, they don't have any alpha blocking activity. Um, the thought process is you decrease the heart rate, which lowers the cardiac output. Um, and when you take blood pressure equals cardiac output times um, systemic vascular resistance, SVR, then uh, as you block those beta receptors, you're going to get some alpha activity, especially in the periphery. It's going to cause that increase in SVR over time, potentially, and it can kind of wash out some of the effects of the... Uh, the heart rate lowering uh, on the blood pressure. And so uh, if we give carvedilol, we're going to block the lower the SVR and the cardiac output. So you get better blood pressure lowering overall. Um, if you don't need the blood pressure to go down as far, use just the beta blocker. So you don't get as much of a blood pressure lowering effect and you can have a better chance of getting them to their target dose. So, um, and the other thing is metoprolol tartrate and succinate besides, you know, tartrate needing to be dosed twice a day instead of once a day, like this guy, um, you know, the, the tartrate doesn't have any evidence behind it. And in fact, it's been studied um, in that Comet trial where um, they took metoprolol tartrate 50 and compared it to carvedilol. And, um, you know, the carvedilol was a superior um, agent in that case. So if we're not going to switch them to metoprolol succinate, then we definitely would want to switch them to carvedilol because that just makes sense from an evidence standpoint. Um, what else? Do you guys want to add anything else before we talk about... I was just going to reference the Merit HF trial for the metoprolol succinate yeah. going up to the 200 milligrams because apparently there's 34% reduction in all-cause mortality when they use that versus placebo. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Merit HF was the outcome study with, um, or at least the big one that people quote with uh, 
um, with uh, metoprolol succinate, and then we have like Copernicus, and like I mentioned Comet with um, Carvedilol, and then um, Cebus 2 with Bisoprolol, so 10 milligrams with Bisoprolol, 200 like Shannon said with metoprolol succinate, and then uh, Carvedilol will be 25 twice a day, unless they're over 85 kilograms, which a lot of patients are, um, then you can go up to 50 twice a day with Carvedilol, but shoot for those target doses, that's, that's key. Um, the, the other thing that we could, if we were trying to get real fancy with this guy, um, and we had uh, an updated echo and all that good stuff, um, he may be a candidate for Entresto as well, our, uh, Secubitrel Valsartan fused molecule. Um, and that's going to be superior to an ACE inhibitor. And, uh, we saw in the Paradigm HF that it was superior to an Allopril, um, in HEF-REF. And then, um, now it's kind of got broad approval for heart failure and chronic heart failure in general. Um, and based on the study, like the Paragon HF trial that had um, included patients that had uh, herbal studied patients that had preserved ejection fraction. And the ones that were kind of in that middle, that weird middle ground of like 40 to 50 seemed to have the most benefit out of the Entresto compared to the rest of the group. And so, you know, th this is where that, at least where that guy is. And so um, he would probably be a candidate for, for that. Um, if we did want to go that route, uh, we would have to make sure that we stop the lisinopril for technically 36 hours, but uh, we'll, we'll tell them two days um, just to make it simple. And then uh, we would start the Entresto because if you don't do that, you greatly increase this patient's uh, risk of angioedema um, if we do the ACE inhibitor plus the Entresto at the same time. So that would be another option. Um, do you got anything uh, you want to mention on spironolactone or you want me to... Keep blabbing. No, I just the uh, top cat trial was yeah, in yeah. Um, half path. Yeah. So with we have multiple studies um, with a plenarone and spironolactone and half ref, but half pef just like everything else, we're kind of limited on our number of studies that we have, um, especially when it comes to outcome data. We have basically none. Um, so we know that certain things can decrease hospitalizations, uh, like SGLT2 inhibitors that we're going to talk about. But uh, when it comes to true like decreasing mortality risk, um, not uh, much data, if any, um, there. So. And again, we didn't make all these changes in one visit. Obviously, this is kind of us game planning for going forward. But with spironolactone, um, the TopCat trial was done in preserved ejection fraction to try to show that mortality de risk more decreased. However, uh, they did not uh, see that um, compared to placebo. It wasn't statistically different. Um, but the uh, one of the weird kind of reanalyses of some of the um, patients that were included in that study, um, specifically some of the clinics that were included in uh, Russia and uh, the country of Georgia, um, were they basically tested the patient's um, blood for active metabolites of spironolactone, um, which they patients did not have any at all. So it was actually called in a question about their adherence and like how like, closely the protocol of the study was actually being followed in the first place. And it was closed numerically different. And so it didn't quite meet statistical significance, but the thought process is, you know, did, did we lose that chance of reaching statistical significance because the study protocol wasn't followed appropriately in certain institutions? So it's, it's because there's some you know, discrepancy that's hard to say for sure. Obviously we won't know unless we just redid the study, but, um, you know, it's something that it, 
may end up giving us uh, some benefit that we we don't we don't see or have the data to back up, uh, but we do know it's good for blood pressure anyway. So it'd be something that we could always consider as an adjunct therapy um, if we need to decrease the uh, the blood pressure further. Um, and I I would argue that that's probably a better option than putting them on amlodipine or, or putting them on HCTG or in dapamide or any of the thiazides. Uh, and so it's it'd be something that I would try to shoot for that ahead of time. Um, now, this patient is already on amlodipine and was on HTTZ before we get rid of it. But, uh, you know, one of the questions that can come up is, is the calcium channel blocker going to cause issues with the HEF, um, the heart failure? Specifically, HEF-REF, we know that it does um, in, in the case of the non-dihydroperidine calcium channel blockers. Um, and so, you know, the, what about the dihydros? You know, they wanted to make sure that wasn't an issue. Um, we use the non-dihydros in... Uh, in HEF-PEF sometimes, but then we have to stop them in HEF-REF. And since we're not really sure where this guy truly lies, um, then we need to uh, at least kind of use some caution there. So I, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting him on a non-dihydro until we can get another echo. Um, but he's, he's on a dihydro, the, the amlodipine. Um, and we do have data in HEF-REF patients um, showing that uh, it basically doesn't provide any uh, decrease in mortality risk, but it also doesn't cause any harm either. So the PRAISE-2 trial um, was that one. And it's something that I think, you know, is, a, is an important talking point because if you have a patient who, you, like this guy who you see on it, don't, you don't have to freak out and like take them off of it or anything. Um, but the, you know, just keep in mind, you want to optimize the other meds that have data kind of backing them up before you just jump on something like hemodopine because, again, the HEF-PEF or HEF-REF kind of takes precedence in the hierarchy of importance, Um compared to just primary hypertension by itself. Now, if you get to the point where you've optimized everything, patient's still having hypertension issue. We know hypertension is a driving factor for, you know, stress in the heart and, and that left ventricular hypertrophy and all that good stuff. And so it would make sense to maybe put them on amlodipine at that point um, as an add-on, but optimize the therapy for the heart failure first and then consider the um, add-on agents for hypertension. And I guess the last thing to touch on would be the fact that he's not on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, and so for those of you who are screaming at me because I went through diabetes and didn't mention that, it's because I was saving it for this part, so calm down. Um, but the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors that, um, you know, originally they were all studied just like the uh, uh, GLP-1s were and the DPP-4s looking for any signs of like um, cardiovascular risk um, associated with those agents. And the good news is that some of these agents not only had no risk, but they also had actually cardiovascular protection and um, benefit. And so some of the SGLT2 inhibitors, we noticed uh, decreased heart failure uh, hospitalizations. Um, they also seemed to protect the kidneys um, as well. And so they had some other additional side benefits on top of just lowering um, you know, the patient's A1C. So the two uh, agents, the Jardiance and the Forziga, were the two that kind of continued on past just the diabetes realm and started undergoing studies in patients with you know, either heart failure. They also looked at them in patients with CKD. Um, and the Emperor uh, Preserve study just came out recently, um, which had a primary composite of cardiovascular death and also um, hospitalizations and all that good stuff. And so the primary composite was statistically um, reduced. The problem is, is it was being driven by the hospitalization risk reduction. Yeah. So cardiovascular death wasn't different by itself. 
Uh, and so it's something that, uh, you know, that would still be an option, um, to, to do, uh, Jardines in this patient, especially since he's got uncontrolled diabetes. Um, so once he bumps up the Ozempic dose, that's definitely something that we would, um, you know, consider putting him on and realistically we'd probably need to put him on it sooner than later. Uh, the reason we kind of just went with those Ozempic uh, dose increase for this visit is because obviously he's already on it um, and his A1C is so high that we really need a GLP-1 um, to help get that down. But the plan is to hopefully add on the SGLT2 at the next visit and um, kind of go from there. But there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms. AJ, how many mechanisms um, were involved with the SGLT2 inhibitor uh, decrease in heart failure? Didn't you look that up one time? I think there's six or seven. Yeah, it was a bunch. You found an article on that at one point, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Um, so contact AJ if you want the article. <laughs> don't don't message me because I don't have it. Um, but uh, it was I, I looked at it briefly, and uh, it was a lot of different proposed mechanisms, not just the the diuretic effect. Um, and you know the one of the big debates about you know between agents and all that. Um, is the fact that if you look at the original outcome data, so just like we'll just use Farziga and Jardians for an example. If you look at the Jardians uh, data, the Emperor outcomes, they had decreasing cardiovascular mortality, they had a decrease in hospitalizations, renal protection, all that good stuff. The Depagliflozin and the Farziga, um, their uh, declared TIMI trial did not show a difference and de- did not show a decrease in cardiovascular mortality, although the hospitalizations and kidney uh, protection, all that stuff were, were all there. Um, and so going into it, I expected um, when the HEFREF data came out with both of those, um, you know, the uh, DAPA-HF and then the uh, Emperor uh, Reserve, um, the uh, Emperor Reduced trial, I almost said reserved. Um, <laughs> it's, that's a different trial probably. Um, but the uh, they used a lower dose of Jardians in that one. They only used 10 milligrams instead of the 25, which is a little odd. Um but they did not show a mortality decrease in that group, whereas Farziga did have mortality um, decrease in their group. <sighs> <laughs> so one one thing is that uh, the patients that were in the uh, Farziga study um, initially that declared Timmy the original outcomes um, CVOT study were you know more sick. They were they had more risk associated uh, with their overall you know situation, um, and so that might explain why maybe the patients didn't see that decrease in mortality compared to placebo, possibly. Um, but then again, it's it's kind of hard to say that for sure because you could also argue the other way if you really wanted to. It it's just makes it a little bit confusing. Um, plus now with the Jardians, I've heard some people saying, well, if you used a higher dose of Jardians, maybe you would have gotten better result. <sighs> We know that both drugs seem to do pretty well. Um, I do tend to lean more towards the Jardians train, to be totally honest. Um, One, it's just it's cheaper at our clinic under our 340B program, Um, and the outcome data originally uh, was did look like it was a little bit better um, with the just the uh, Impareg outcomes trial. And so, yeah, I do tend to lean towards that. But either one of them, I would be fine with the patient being on. Um, and we know that it can not only help his hef ref if he has that, depending on what his echo says, and then uh, also can help his kidneys since we already know that uh, he does have CKD uh, stage two. So definitely should be uh, on the radar for adding an SGLT2 inhibitor at the next visit. What's next, guys? Kidneys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So CKD, stage two. 
mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, in that, especially in our primary care type setting, not super worried uh, about, or, you know, I shouldn't say we're not super worried, but it tends to get overlooked for the more pressing disease states. Um, right. You know, stage three, we start seeing potentially some issues with, whether it's vitamin D metabolism activation, um, phosphorus or whatever, especially in, you know, stage B three B, but stage two, he wasn't really having any issues, um, associated directly with CKD. Didn't have any signs of, uh, you know, an increase in his albumin creatinine ratio. Um, his, his kidney function was somewhat stable. He's on uh, an ACE inhibitor. Um, mm-hmm. he's going to be on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, so all good there. But, uh, the one area that we did kind of catch, and I, I think it was kind of like a last minute thing in the in the appointment, if I remember correctly, he just started mentioning how tired he was, and initially kind of chalked that up to his A1C being a thirteen. I'm sure he is feeling pretty tired. Um, however, if we kind of started talking to him a little bit more and um, went back and looked at his uh, CBC from I think like a year ago, and his hemoglobin was fairly low. Uh, and so uh, we ran another uh, CBC and also did iron labs on them um, just to kind of see uh, if, if it was maybe anemia stemming from CKD um, or iron deficiency anemia, both, whatever you know, the case may be. And um, labs came back and his um, hemoglobin was an 11.1 um, and then his uh, MCV was a 78 uh, and then his iron labs in general, they were all in the, they were on the low side of normal, but technically still normal. Mm-hmm. Um, TSAT was a uh, 20. Um, and then his ferritin came back as a, um, let's see, what was it? 19. Mm-mm. <laughs> so that's definitely lower than uh, we typically like, um, especially in a patient with, with CKD. Uh, I'm thinking ferritin, even like, some some uh, sources will say you know, 200 or so or less, uh, but there's also some resources now saying 500 or, or less, which is pretty high. We still need to consider um, potentially looking at uh, increasing or, or adding on a, an iron supplement um, just to make sure we catch it ahead of time. But the, uh, the patient's, um, you know, ferritin's already low, so that's like the stored, you know, the iron storage uh no. What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> the uh, the thing, the molecule okay. that stores the iron. There you go. Right. Um, <laughs> AJ, what am I doing over here? No idea. A whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. Um, but uh, that's low already, and so he's probably depleting his iron stores, and mm-hmm. so the other iron labs are going to probably fall um, and continue to, to move towards that low range as, as time goes on. Um, and so it was something that uh, – you know, we, we did recommend him going on a, a iron supplement. Um, so ferrous sulfate 325 is usually a good go-to. Now, Blake, do we still give patients uh, a million milligrams of iron a day and just tell them to keep doing it regardless of how horrible it makes them feel? Yeah, we probably do, but we shouldn't. <laughs> we should uh, you know, at least be dosing it every other day. I mean, even Monday, Wednesday, Friday would be a, a good dosing schedule. Yeah, it's kind of like this weird, like, I don't, I hate these word paradoxical, but almost, mm-hmm. um, where we assume, obviously, if you're giving more iron, your their patient's going to hopefully have, you know, increase those iron stores quicker and get their levels back to normal. Right. But um, in this case, you know, the, with the ferritin being where it is, um, y- you know, and all that stuff, when you look at the data, it's, it actually, the patient's iron levels get normalized quicker 
quicker when they are on alternative day dosing instead of this you know multiple time a day regimen that we used to use because right. we used to say 100 to 200 elemental or milligrams of elemental iron per day which is three tablets of that um of the ferrous sulfate roughly and so yeah, i mean that's a lot of iron i don't know if you guys at home have ever taken iron before um but and i haven't either now that i say that but i've seen this i've seen people that take iron and it looks like it's a lot of constipation and a lot of not fun um not so fun. yeah not fun <laughs> at all so it's something that if we can tell patients to do you know every other day or even like blake said i've, I've i have a lot of people at uh, my clinic that get put on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, iron, uh, supplement just once a day, just to start, we actually get better results, um, than giving it to them every day or multiple times a day. And, uh, that study came out kind of comparing the two dosing schedules and showed the alternative day was better. And so, yeah, we've definitely tried to move, at least, you know, in our clinic, we've tried to move away from giving multiple doses per day, but it's definitely something that, uh, still happens. So if you can catch that, you'll, the patient will absolutely thank you. Um, now as time goes on, uh, we also do need to keep in mind, you know, the patients, uh, that they have CKD and we could get to the point where the hemoglobin, um, continues to fall. And, uh, you know, maybe the iron's not just the problem. It may just be the fact that the kidneys aren't creating erythropoietin. Um, and then we do end up having to go to like a erythropoietin stimulating agent. Uh, but that probably is not for going to be for a while till he gets further down the road with the CKD. And hopefully we can slow the progression of his CKD with our, um, SGLT2 that we're going to add on. So, We'll see, but something to keep in mind. And, um, you know, the, the big thing is we'll get him some iron. Hopefully he'll get some energy, uh, back. And we're also, um, or at least less fatigue anyway, maybe he won't be running marathons, but less fatigue would be nice. I'm sure. And then once that A1C comes down, he's definitely going to feel a lot better instead of having maple syrup for blood <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's going to help. And then, um, once we get him back on metformin, we'll keep in mind our, our B12, uh, supplementation as well. If we need to go that route, um, give him a little bit more pep in a step. Um, and I guess the other thing, uh, we could mention with his CKD cause all the other you know, labs and everything like that were fine as far as that goes. Um, but there is a new drug that we'll mention real briefly, um, Carendia or Phenernone, um, which is a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. Um, kind of think of it as uh, kind of a similar drug to spironolactone in a way, um, but it's actually made and approved for patients that have um, diabetic uh, nephropathy, so you know diabetic kidney disease, and um, you know it's on the market currently, and uh, it's. I like to almost think of it as like another alternative for preserving um, the patient's renal function. Uh, it's kind of one of those things that it, it has a lot of the same data that mirrors the SGLT2 data. Um, and, you know, we, we do have to still monitor things like the potassium at, at baseline. So like if a patient has a, a potassium above five, we don't want to use it just like we wouldn't with spironolactone or plenarinone. Um, and then, you know, the renal function declines uh, lower than 25, then we, we don't use it. Uh, but it's, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, is, is, has good outcome data with it, does protect the kidneys and is one of those things that is another uh, opportunity for us to hopefully preserve this patient's kidney function. I still think in this case, because of the diabetes and all that kind of stuff, um, I think an SGLT2 is probably a better option, um, for him initially, but we'll keep this agent in our back pocket just so we can make sure that we, uh, you know, keep that, keep that on the radar. 
Yeah. Anything else? Oh, with BPH. We almost didn't even talk mm. about prostate stuff. Yeah. Men's health. Right, Shannon? Yes. The most yeah. important topic. Yes. <laughs> so he's on Tamsulosin, 0.4 milligrams once a day, and then was recently um, added on with finasteride, 5 milligrams. So, um, and this is because he was still symptomatic on the Tamsulosin. So usually when we're looking at... Um, Starting finasteride, it's based on um, how many grams the prostate is, how enlarged it is. We're unsure uh, how you know how he is with that, um, but yeah, that that was started for him. So, so, so technically speaking, we want to make sure that the the indication for five uh, alpha reductase inhibitor is going to be um, when a patient has a prostate that's forty grams or more, um, and so. We didn't see any documentation about this, and um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not trying to do any kind of digital rectal exam or anything like that. That's why I became a pharmacist instead. Um, but it's something that uh, we weren't quite sure. Um, but just for education purposes, uh, if if the prostate is enlarged, uh, we still typically will start with an alpha blocker, uh, like so in this case the uroselective alpha blocker, tamsulosin, um, to help with symptom relief kind of right away because that's going to take about a week or if that um, to kind of kick in and start helping. Whereas the finasteride needs time to kind of shrink the prostate. Um, so you're blocking the enzyme that's responsible for converting testosterone into dihydrotestosterone, which causes that hypertrophy of the prostate to begin with. And so when, you know, we block that receptor, it's still going to take a while, that enzyme rather, we're st it's still going to take a while to actually see some kind of symptom relief. And so we typically think six months or, or so to, really see a clinical difference um, when adding on finasteride. And so, one, we'd want to make sure that this patient even needs finasteride at this point because um, we also have the agent Tadalafil, um, Cialis 5 milligrams, um, taken daily, um, can also be an adjunct uh, therapy to an alpha blocker. Um, as, if, as long as he's established on the alpha blocker, his blood pressure can handle it, then you could add the um, the phosphodesterase 5 inhibitor uh, to Dalafil as well, if he didn't have an enlarged prostate. Now, if he did, definitely finasteride. Um, I even like dutasteride probably a little bit better. Um, and the only reason I say that is because uh, there was two, there were studies looking at like incidence of prostate cancer with both drugs, um, separate studies, obviously. But with the finasteride, they did see that um, a lower, um, a lower risk of prostate cancer overall. However, the patients that did get prostate cancer um, had a higher risk of a high-grade prostate cancer if they were on finasteride. So that's not great. Whereas the dutasteride did not show the same effects um, and was kind of just uh, lower cancer risk across the board. Um, didn't see an increased risk of higher prostate cancer grade um, in the patients who did get um, did develop cancer. Now. The other thing to keep in mind with those agents is there are case reports of them actually causing uh, patients to start to experience depression, like clinical depression symptoms. And it's something that uh, we oftentimes just kind of don't even think about or address with those agents. But if you have a patient with that is depressed and is on, you know, maybe treatment options or they're not controlled, or you see the patient, you know, is still struggling with multiple med, med changes for um, some kind of a behavioral health type situation, use those with caution. Obviously, if the BPH, you know, indicates it, then you just want to make sure you tell the patient to report any kind of changes in mood and things like that. But I feel like that's something that's not 
talked about a whole lot and it is something that can happen. So kind of keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, but this guy, you know, if that's right, if his, if his prostate is enlarged, um, over 40 grams, then yes, that'd be fine. Um, or detesteride. And if not, especially if he's having any issues of erectile dysfunction, the hundred percent to Dalafil on top of the Tamsulosin would be a good choice. And the other thing you'll see sometimes, just in, in, I'll bring this up too, just to kind of mention it, is you'll see patients who have hypertension and they have BPH. And the clinician's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get fancy and I'm going to give them doxazosin, the stupidest drug on the planet, so that they can uh, kill two birds with one stone. That's the second time I've used that dumb expression in this podcast, Blake. <laughs> you gotta, I need better <laughs> expressions. But... Um, you know, the doxazosin being an alpha blocker itself, and it's non-selective as well. And so kind of like we were talking about with the beta blocker uh, earlier, where if you block one of those receptors in the androgenic nervous system, you're going to have unopposed activity on the other side. So if you're blocking the alpha receptors like in the periphery and all that, yes, you'll get some decreases in blood pressure. However, uh, you're going to increase the potential activity of the beta receptors. So beta receptors in the, the heart start uh, having increased activity. Heart rate goes up. You could actually make the cardiac output go up. Um, and if nothing else, increasing um, oxygen demand at the, uh, at, the, at the heart and all that good stuff. So, you know, you could technically increase the risk of like heart failure, which this guy doesn't need any more risk for that. And uh, we actually saw this in the accomplished trial where we always, I'm sorry, not the accomplished, the um, all hat, um, almost said the wrong trial. The uh, all hat trial, we always talk about lisinopril and lodipine chlorothaladone that were in those. However, there actually was a doxazosin arm originally that everybody forgets about, but they stopped that arm because it actually had an increased risk of uh, heart failure, um, you know, occurring. So they stopped that arm and doxazosin is like considered a sixth or seventh line by the American Heart Association for hypertension anyway. And uh, so the urology folks kind of even made a, a statement, a position, if you will, saying, please stop trying to do this one drug for two different disease states. Doxazosin is not indicated for hypertension uh, as far from an evidence-based medicine standpoint. And so optimize evidence-based medicine for that disease state and then optimize medicine for the BPH. And they recommend obviously using a uroselective uh, alpha blocker like tamsulosin um, in order to, you know, get better results anyway. And so give them two different drugs and you know, doxazosin obviously still around, but it's just going to lead to more adverse effects. Um, could worsen his heart failure in this case. And we just, we don't need it. We don't need it in our lives, Blake. <laughs> right now let's get rid of it, dude. But anyways, I'll get off my soapbox about that, but I figured we got to at least talk about it. I like to hate, there's like a few drugs I like to hate on, so I take every opportunity I can to do it on this podcast. Um, anything else for this guy? No? I think we got yeah. him covered, yeah. AJ, we miss anything? Didn't miss anything. We haven't had your, we haven't heard your big powerful voice at all, so that's kind of concerning. Here, let, me, uh, let me bring it in. I guess uh, AJ I guess, uses so, a voice synthesizer. That's why he sounds like that. So nobody uh, has to feel the need to hit me up after. Uh, one of the proposed mechanisms for uh, cardiovascular benefit with the SGLT2s is the glycosuria is going to decrease plasma glucose. That's going to sort of increase the glucagon suppression. Uh, that increased deficit for acetylcoenzyme A is going to decrease the cholesterol production. That's going to lead into, you know, uptake of L, uh, low density lipoprotein and just lowering that LDL and, and decreasing the um, the risk for atherosclerotic uh, lesions in the, yeah, atherosclerotic lesions in the vasculature is uh, a big thing. Yeah. 
one of the big things. Yeah, that's a good step. And and still hit AJ up. He's trying to get out of, you know, if you, <laughs> you're going to want to get in his DMs as quick as possible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hit up AJ as much as you want. Um, full permission. But uh, I guess the other thing I'll mention, just because someone, someone will say something about it if we don't, this guy probably needs to be on a statin. Um, at least needs to be on uh, a moderate intensity, uh, Torva 10 or 20, but realistically probably uh, needs to be on something even higher because of his cardiovascular risk and um, all that good stuff. But definitely needs to be on a statin. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't hurt from getting put on that. Um, but yeah, so that's it. If you guys have any questions, comments, anything you want me to add, um, well, it's too late for that, but I still like to hear them. So make sure you send me a message. Um, reach, you can reach Cole and me at uh, our emails below. Um, we're also available through any of the social media platforms. Um, you know, you can send us a uh, text, then the number that's in the show notes as well. Um, and we'll do our absolute best to respond as quick as we can. Uh, we, we do, we have been getting more and more messages and all that good stuff now. So we're, we're, we're trying to keep up, but we also have other jobs and stuff like that going on. So I promise you, we're not ignoring you on purpose. We'll get back to you, but, um, check out the Patreon account. If you don't like our uh, style of podcast where we just start rambling about nonsense sometimes instead of staying on task, um, we have, uh, our lecture style, um, you know, actual episodes on the, the Patreon uh, where you get downloadable slide sets and all that good stuff. And uh, I think there's, um, we've mentioned this a few times now, there's almost a hundred different lectures on there. So it's thousands of PowerPoint slides, I would say at this point. It's my preference. Yeah. I like to listen to you guys. Yeah. My, my <laughs> soothing voice. Actually, that's not true because it's when I get blasted about my voice in the comments section. So whatever. Joe Rogan. Well, then not, no, that, that one I took as a compliment. The other ones were <laughs> like, I hate, one guy said he hates my voice. I'm like, Jeez, man, it's harsh. <laughs> My, my mom gave me this voice, I think, <laughs> but, uh, it's something that, uh, I can't really change. Um, unless I do like AJ does and use the, uh, T-Pain synthesizer <laughs> over there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So thank you guys so much. Check out that and, um, you know, just keep listening. We really, really appreciate the support. We'll see you guys next time. Have a good one.